back and back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. Jake, I'm so sorry. Can we do it one more time? I realized my mic was too loud. Okay. And then I had to adjust it. Okay, sorry. (sighs) Welcome to Decision Decision Space, Space. the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. Today, we're launching a classic Decision Space deep dive on a Spiel DR's 2022 winner, Living Forest. That's right, y'all. Tonight, we might come the closest we've come ever to covering the hotness on this show. But I think the questions that we have are, does this charming little game that's one part blackjack, one part deck builder, one part multiple victory condition puzzle, and one part snazzy action rondel really have the decisional roots to stand the test of time? We'll get at that question and more on today's episode of Decision Space. And I'm so excited because we were planning this episode and then Living Forest won the Spiel DR. So we're just sort of landing at the perfect moment for this show. And before we get into the meat of this episode, I just want to take a quick pause to welcome new listeners. The past two weeks for our show have been a little bit of a boom. Thanks to uh, Carly from Gnarly Carly Gaming and Thanks to, you know, hacking, doing a little social hacking to do a what in the biz is called a top 10 list to get up <laughs> into uh, the board game charts. But I, I imagine we've had quite a few new listeners. So if that's you, I just want to say thank you for checking out our show and welcome. I also want to give a quick thanks to Jim D, who is our newest Patreon supporter. Thank you so much. Every time uh, we get a Patreon backer, that's just like total wins wind in our sails uh to keep doing this show and it just you know that's an awesome way to show appreciation so we do have a patreon if that's something uh, that you feel uh financially able to support throw us a few bucks a month that would be amazing and if you're not in a position to do that no problem at all of course uh we are just delighted to have you here at all we're so excited to follow up last week's announcement that we have a new section on our website dedicated to articles. We kicked that off with this awesome article by Aurora looking at the decision space of Seven Wonders Architects. That article actually led to the best single day for our website ever. And we're going to follow that up with a an article launching today, if you're listening to this on the release day of the podcast, which the vast majority of you, that will be the case. Uh, you can go to decisionspacepodcast.com and then click on the little articles tab at the top and you'll see a new article that is a deep dive into uh, an episode we covered on episode 58, a new way to talk about objectives in games. So this sort of walks you through a lot of what we covered in that episode. It has beautiful photos. I hope they're beautiful. uh, And some really good game examples to give you a sense and let you grapple with that idea in text form. Jake, myself, uh, and Aurora, who wrote that article, I think are all really excited about the response that we saw to last week's article and want to keep that going. So if you're interested in decision space and this sort of the way that we approach games and the way that we think about games expanding, we'd love for you to share that content and visit that content and let us know you're enjoying it. 
So I just wanted to plug that new article again going up today on decisionspacepodcast.com. And the last piece of housekeeping here is for our pre-planners, those of you who like to play games along with us ahead of time to perhaps get a little bit more out of the deep dive discussions. You should know that on next week's episode, we'll be covering Isle of Cats. Then we'll probably do some discussion topic episodes. And then after that break, uh, we will be looking to get our discussion of Agricola in and Blood Rage. So we have some big games coming up uh, and we hope that you maybe play along, refresh yourself and then uh, be back right here for the conversation. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. I think you should go. Do you want to go first, Jake, or should I go first? Uh, I can go first. So okay. uh, as we always do at the front of the episode, we will do our rating of the game covered on these deep dives and then just a really short synopsis of our thoughts about the game. Uh, so Living Forest, I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. I really enjoyed playing this game. Uh, I think, you know, it's approaching a game that I would consider great. Um, I'm not quite sure if it reaches that yet. And I think the game that it is my play experience mirrored the closest was playing through uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak, a game that I've come to really love over more plays. Um, and the reason I say that is because I haven't really been like blown away, I guess, by any individual play or even any individual moment inside of an individual play. But it's just continually pleasant, continually fun. And I've just been enjoying the romp that each of these games has provided. Uh, So for me, it's an eight out of 10, a a game I would recommend highly. Awesome. That's a really solid rating. Here's my my piece on Living Forest, uh, which is written out. So let me get into it. Living Forest is a beautiful, delightful, and ambitious game packed as densely as a jungle full of ideas. It's a deck building game, a tableau building game. It has a rondelle. It's inspired by Blackjack, has multiple paths to victory, and I I could go on. Ultimately, for me, the promise of Living Forest betrays the core experience a little bit. Its multiple paths to victory communicate a sense of freedom and flexibility, but the game itself creates a strict, almost procedural sense of structured play. Fire, trees, flowers. Yes, there's a strategic ecosystem here, and what is best depends on what other players at the table do, and that's awesome. But games of living force often feel on rails, with games ending the exactly same number of rounds each play, play after play, with little variation. There are decisive and fun decisions in Living Forest. I just wish that the game let me make them more often than it does and get out of the player's way a little bit more off, more than it's willing to do. Seven out of 10. Still an awesome game. It's incredible. This game's so ambitious, Jake. I think that what really strikes me about this game is how successfully it integrates about 30,000 different ideas. I really thought your review is going to be or your rating, sorry, was going to be much lower based on your synopsis. I thought you were going like five. I was like bracing myself. I was like, uh oh, Brendan really took his time. He's laying out the rationale. He's going to he's going to crush it. And then nope, you're just nice and easy. Seven solid recommend. I think one of the reasons why I'm being a little bit harsher with Living Force, and I wrote this before it won the Kinderspiel DRs, I, I want to say that, mm-hmm. uh, is that I think that this game has so much potential to be absolutely incredible uh and it almost pulls the pieces together for me i think for a lot of people it's really going to work well but so little decisions about the decision space bug me and make it a game that i don't think will endure on tables for 20 years and it could have been there it's so close in my eyes and i it frustrates me because it's fun it's awesome it's beautiful it's gorgeous there's so much going on it it, it's fun i want to exist in the space of living forest 
but some of the design decisions push me away from continuing to do so. Well, we will talk about it more. And one other thing I just wanted to flag or pull out from your synopsis is uh, the phrase that it feels on rails because mm. that is very similar to the way we talked about Arnak. Arnak, though ultimately that was a game we both enjoyed quite a bit. So interested to hear your thoughts more about that as we kind of get into the main topic. But before we do that, let's just do the stats, uh, our game breakdown here. Living Forest was published in 2021. It was designed by Aske Christensen, a first-time designer or the first published design by Christensen, uh, which is another similarity to Lost Ruins of Arnak, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, they keep coming. Um, And then this was published uh, first in France by Ludenaut and has been picked up by many other uh, publishers. Is that like game not is that like almost like what we do oh, i think, it, I think it might be yeah oh my goodness that's, that's pretty cool i feel like so much affinity with that publisher all of a sudden <laughs> that's awesome uh and then brendan do you want to go ahead and read the jury statement on this kenner spiel winner as we already mentioned yeah i'd love to so one thing that we always love to do on the show uh is whenever a game is nominated for or has won the spiel the R's, uh, whether it's the Spill the R's or the Kinner Spill the R's, which is what this game won, the sort of connoisseur expert game category in the Spill the R's, which is the biggest prize uh, board game award in Germany. We like to read the jury's comments or at least an excerpt of them to give people a sense for what that group was thinking about the game. Uh, so here it is for Living Forest. There are three key factors to the thrill and attraction of Living Forest the exciting race to 12 points, the risky gamble of when to stop revealing cards, and the high level of interaction with your opponents. The three different victory conditions are especially motivating, ensuring a high level of replayability and a different dynamic to each new game. Those are, again, fires, trees, and flowers, is what they're referring to. Those three paths. So that's it, Jake. All right. Uh, Pretty straightforward one there, but... Uh, I always think it's interesting, and I guess we should also note that this is translated over from German, so perhaps not exactly perfect, but I think that gives you a good idea of what these uh, judges were thinking. So without further ado, Brendan, let's roll your pre-recorded game rules overview, and then meet back on the other side to deep dive this game. Living Forest is a press-your-luck deck-building game with variable win conditions, planting 12 different types of trees, collecting 12 flowers, or extinguishing 12 fires. The core gameplay loop of Living Forest is straightforward. Each player has a deck of guardian animal cards with two key features, the elemental resources that they provide, and potentially a solitary or gregarious marker. Each round, players simultaneously reveal cards from the top of their personal guardian animal deck. One at a time, in a blackjack-style hit mechanism, players may reveal as many cards as they wish to their tableau, and each card that they do reveal adds elemental resources they can use to take more powerful actions in the second part of each round. However, if a player ever reveals three animal guardian cards with a solitary marker, then they may only take one action in the subsequent phase, the action phase, rather than two 
actions, a stiff penalty that rarely makes busting worth it. After revealing cards, players take turns using the elements they revealed on their cards to take actions in the action phase. These actions correspond to the win conditions of the game, but not always directly so. For example, a player might use revealed plants to buy trees, which give persistent benefits, or they might use revealed suns to buy new animal guardian cards to add to the top of their deck, or they might use revealed water to put out fires from a shared pool, or they might use movement icons to move around a shared action rondel that provides an action corresponding to the space the player lands on. Buy a tree, purchase cards, put out fires, gain fragment tokens, which let you discard cards during phase one to craft better tableaus, etc. Additionally, if a player ever passes over another player's piece on this shared rondelle in the center of the table, they may take a victory tile from their opponent, a key source of direct interaction in Living Forest. Finally, at the end of each round, players check the number of fire remaining on the board in that shared area and their water elemental value. For each fire in excess of water the player has, they add one fire card to their deck, a card with only a solitary symbol, and these fire cards can severely hamper a player's future tableaus. Gagarius symbols, which I mentioned earlier, may appear on animal guardian cards that players can purchase and add to their deck. These symbols cancel out one solitary symbol, which means that as the game goes on, typically, players are putting out larger and larger tableaus if not playing their entire deck all at once. Once a player achieves one of the game's victory conditions, game end is triggered, at which point the player who triggered the game end wins. If multiple players could have triggered the end game in the final round, then players sum their progress towards all three win conditions, trees, fire, and flowers, and the player with the greatest cumulative total wins. There's a multitude of small additional rules in Living Forest, but this should give you a good sense for the core gameplay and flow of the game. All right. Thank you so much, Brendan. You always do an awesome job with that. And I greatly appreciate it. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to the deep dive portion of this episode, where we will, as we always do, break down the decision space in Living Forest. And Brendan, let's try and do a little bit, in, because I think we do have some new listeners joining likely, let's try and be a little bit more intentional about breaking down some of the terminology that we use that'll be familiar with our longtime listeners. Uh, just so that we can make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, but let's start first by characterizing the decision space. Uh, and, and first, let's talk about the size and depth of the decision space. Do you want to take the first stab at that? Yeah, I would, I would love to. Okay, so sort of two things there. Uh, I feel like the size of the decision space, right? Like overall, how many different situations can you find yourself at, in as a player is actually surprisingly large for what's a pretty lightweight game, positioned as a pretty lightweight game. And I think that this is a function of how many different systems there are in the game. Uh, on a given turn, you sort of have these two phases, which I just talked about in the rules overview. So you're flipping your cards, uh, building this tableau of resources that you're going to use in the action phase. And it's the action phase where I think the size really balloons to be bigger than a lot of games that this is competing with. Uh, just in terms of the sheer number of options the player is given, because you might interact with uh, the trees in a given round, or you might interact with fires, or you might go buy some animal guardian cards, and then that interacts with the fire mechanic, or you might move on the rondelle, which is called the Circle of Spirits, I believe, which might let you <laughs> uh, just get some tokens to interact with the uh, tableau building, tableau flipping phase, the sort of blackjack hit me, I'm going to get my 
resources for the round phase, or you might double action. Uh, you might put out fires. There's lots of different places you can go that I think make the decision space large, but do keep it constrained. You're either doing sort of like A, B, C, or D. You're not doing, and maybe you'll do one of those actions twice. You're not picking from this vast open board, but it makes it feel larger because you are given a robust number of options. I don't, my criticism might come in with the number of meaningful decisions at this point, the number of meaningful options really starts to narrow once you are two, three rounds into the game very quickly, mm -hmm. in my opinion. What do you think, Jake? Yeah, I agree that the decision space is larger than you might first assume for a game that has essentially four actions available to you on each and every turn, which would be buying from the tree market, buying from the card market, uh, putting out fire or moving on the rondelle. Yeah. Um, so you're essentially going to be picking either one or two of those things on every single turn of the game, depending on whether or not you bust in the blackjack portion of your turn. Um, but I do think like in each of those, whichever two you choose to interact with, like almost always afford at least some kind of interesting decision mm. there. And also sequencing is very important too. Um, where, you know, you might want to, uh, you know, use the trees first to unlock something else to do something separate on your turn or use the uh, the wheel first to, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, so I think like as we talk about how decision spaces grow, this definitely has a, at least one or two branches on every single turn. Mm -hmm. Really, if I do this first, that means this consequence for my next action. You build a tree, which gets you access to a few more suns, which then allow you to buy more cards. And because you can buy as many cards as you want, as long as you don't pay more than the suns you have, you now have enough to buy three cards instead of two or two cards instead of one, something like that. Mm -hmm. Those are the most exciting decisions for me in this game. And it's, I guess it's generally the trees that enable a, a stronger second action. Sometimes, too, you'll move on the rondelle. Yeah, it is typically the trees, I think. But... There are those two rules, I think, that make those richer, right? That you can buy as many cards as you can afford. And the tree rule that I think makes it richer is that you win by having 12 unique trees, but there's real incentive for having uh, duplicate trees in some cases, right? Maybe I, I just want to stack suns and build up a, a, a large amount of purchasing power. So I'm willing to buy the same tree a couple of times because I'm going for a victory condition that isn't trees. Uh, or maybe I just want to deny a tree that I already have from the player who I think is going for the tree victory condition. Even in, you know, purchasing cards, often, you know, you're picking between multiple different cards or even some combination of cards that can become pretty, not complex pretty quickly, but definitely increase uh, the skill ceiling there, right? Being able to identify like what cards make sense to buy. I think there's a lot of potential to improve there. And then even in the... I guess the putting out fire action, it's pretty straightforward. If you take that action, you generally want to take pick up as many fires as you can. Um, but what I find a lot of intrigue with that is when you choose not to take it, even though you could take make a profitable action there, right? Like if I have seven water, I could, you know, potentially gain three fire tokens. But if I look over at the board and see that my opponent or opponents uh, don't have enough 
water to to reach the number of fire there i might choose not to take it even if it would help me just because like putting those bad bonfire cards into my opponent's deck by virtue of me foregoing that option could be a lot more beneficial to me over the long run in the game yeah which is a really interesting tactical decision because you don't know what the potential outcome of those fire cards is going to be you don't necessarily if people are coming after you in turn order maybe that they're just going to pick up the tokens that let them discard them instantly maybe not they could be devastating if all drawn at once and you really can get burned by those fire tokens they can destroy your ability to to interact with the system and i've had plays of this game where oh my first three cards i drew were fire cards i can't do anything this round wow um and that's a decision i made decisions that put me in that position right yeah yeah and and that's good and I, so i think like to me the decision space structure and, and size is like simple but surprisingly deep yeah decisions what about like, the type jay yeah okay so when we talk about type of decision space we're basically talking about uh, how the decision space changes over time from your turn to your last turn. So Brendan came up with this great framework to find a waxing decision space is a, a decision space that you might find in like an engine builder that starts small and grows over turn over time. A waning decision space starts big. You have a lot of options uh, and then slowly whittles down until you have nothing remaining. You might find that in types of abstract games um trick taking trick taking is a great example a dynamic decision space is a decision space that grows and shrinks you know one turn you might have a lot of decisions and the next turn you might have very few and that changes throughout the game and lastly static is the decision space stays roughly the same size over the course of the game and i actually think living forest has a very interesting and uh, probably this is my what I think makes this game special um, to the people who find it special. Um, and this is what I find special about it is that I think it has a decision space very different from any that we've covered before on the show. Um, and I think the decision space is clearly a waxing decision space, but it's a waxing dynamic decision space because of that blackjack element. Like you are powering up over the course of the game. You're putting trees that increase your buying capabilities, your, you know, the amount of water you're putting out. As you expand on your tree board, you're unlocking special actions that's really going to blow up your ability to do things on your turn. You'll be able to take more and more movements around the that wind track, the wind rondelle. However, because of that uh, blackjack element, there's a chance that, you know, on any given turn, you might just have a bus turn, right? Where you either bust so you only get one action instead of two which can be devastating or you draw two of your black icons at the very beginning and choose to stop going and that makes that turn much significantly less powerful than your other turns have been that you've been building up to over the course of the game and then the final outcome is you've added a bunch of gregarious tokens to your deck and you play your entire deck which is a very that happens in this game very frequently it's like, yeah, if you want to go for that, like you can almost certainly achieve it. Yes. So dynamic waxing in a way that we haven't seen before. I think that that's a really interesting way to frame this game. And I think you're spot on, Jake. But one thing that I feel like I bump up against with this game, and I think that your your appraisal of the type of decision space that it has is exactly right. 
But the objectives, when you sit down, you teach this game, you're like, here are the three ways that you can win this game. You can have 12 unique trees, you can have put out 12 fires, or you can have 12 unique flowers, or you can have 12 flowers on a given turn. Um, To me, it feels that while your agency is growing, your ability to pursue different types of uh, win conditions narrows, not instantaneously, but more quickly than I wish it did, it can be difficult to sort of off-board and, and strategy switch to pivot mid to late game in a way that can feel frustrating. But it is that sort of classic engine building thing where, and this game is an engine building game, right? If, if it's a sort of like waxing dynamic decision space, yes, it has that blackjack mechanic that can really constrict certain turns, but overall it's growing. Um, it suffers from what a lot of engine builders will suffer from, which is that it's a game about turning your engine on and then seeing how it does. Uh, it's very difficult to, to switch from fires to flowers or from flowers to trees once you're half of the way into the game. Yeah, I don't know if I fully agree with that because in my experience, like at least the way I've approached this game in my plays is that I'm not just attempting one victory sure. condition. You're attempting two. Two at minimum, but I honestly think like a lot of times I'll just for the first like three or four turns in the game, which is like half of the game. Sure, it's (laughs) usually 12 or 13. Yeah, it's like a very quick game. I just try and like play it organically, I think. Mm -hmm. And it won't even be super clear to me what my path to victory is going to be until that midpoint. And then I kind of have one or two options Um, because I mean, a lot of like you can start out by just building up your money income to buy cards. And then all the cards essentially do multiple things, right? Especially the expensive cards. If you're building up that income, uh, they're going to do a bunch of different things. Well, Um, and also, and it also really depends a lot on, I think how viable switching is going to be too, depends on what your opponents are doing. Um, Where I feel like, I mean, we'll get into like what the I think what the best strategies are in this game. So maybe I'll I'll save that a bit later. But you certainly have ways to mess with what your opponents are doing if they're going for some victory conditions. Uh, and that might afford you more turns to switch than it seems at first blush. Right. Totally. And I think that maybe what I'm saying, I'm bearing the lead somewhat with my idea here, Jake, because I feel like part of what I'm what I'm thinking that I'm not saying is that everything that you just said is correct, for sure. But the ways I want to interact with the system uh, aren't necessarily encouraged, right? Like I want to, if I set out and I'm like, I want to try to play a a flower tree hybrid game, that can be really Mm -hmm. difficult if I'm completely ignoring fires. The design says like fire is the baseline victory. It's the easiest, it's the most, um, fire will get out of control and someone will win that way unless you are participating and keeping it in control, which is a little bit, it feels like the game is saying, you will do your fire homework. You will prevent this from happening first. And then this other part of the game opens up, which is really cool on one hand, because it creates that strategic ecosystem that I was talking about. And a little bit frustrating on the other hand, this is like a total matter of taste, right? Should all strategic paths be equally viable or should there be a hierarchy of strategic paths from easy to more difficult and the more difficult ones open up once a meta develops that sort of reigns in the more linear fire path through this game. And I think that Living Forest lives in that second descriptor more than it lives in the first one. I think that's fair. And I also think like that maybe 
like I think you can go for certain strategies that you want to go for. I don't think that, you know, just like in a, you know, a Magic the Gathering draft, right? I could sit down and say, like, I'm going to take blue cards. and I'm going to play blue. And you could do that. You'll lose. You yeah. know, if you want to. It's probably not going to be the, I mean, it might be the best strategy, but much more likely the best strategy is going in with an open mind and then seeing, like, what paths open up to you. Yeah. And I don't think that's, like, for me, that's not an issue with, like, Magic the Gathering being, like, well, I wanted to do blue this time and there were no good blue cards passed to me. So, like, this totally. game is junk. I know that's not what you're saying. I'm, like, <laughs> definitely being, like, slightly over the top, but... I think that's sort of the case here. And I also think there are more ways to interact with that fire system than just like, oh, I guess I just have to buy this fire stuff so that my opponent won't buy it. Mm. Like you could also choose to buy fewer cards, right? If like players at the table are like, oh, this fire is getting out of control. So we're just going to do take some turns to, you know, move around the rondelle and get trees. Like you might find that person with fire in a really tough spot where they can kind of be held you know, they're at arm's length from victory, yet nobody else is putting any fire into the middle and people keep jumping them and taking away their fire icons to the point where it takes like much longer than you'd think to just get the two more fire that they needed to win. Totally. And I think one thing that I want to be clear about for people who haven't played Living Force, because I don't think I spoke to this in the rules overviews, there's a lot to cover in this game, which is that when you buy guardian animal cards and add them to your deck, that's the mechanism that is allowing more fires to be placed in the middle and pool up in the center. So if you don't buy cards, you're not adding fires, making the fire player have to be the one who has to buy cards to put fires there. But Jake, but buying cards is really fun. I want to buy cards. So if I want to beat fire, I shouldn't do the most fun thing, which is to add better cards to my deck. I should just play with the default deck and try to make it work. Okay, I can do that. But I'm not having as yeah. much fun as I would if I got to buy the cool gorilla card in tier three. That's like this amazing thing that gives me all these resources. I don't know if the gorilla or the amazing stag card or whatever. Sure. But like I'm just saying, if those cards are really fun and I want them. So it's hard when that's the reality of the game. That's true. But also buying more expensive cards means like it's more difficult for the fire player as well than if you buy a bunch of cheap cards. Like, I think the system is a little bit more robust than just like, okay, I just have to like engage in fire in this like very linear way. That's all. I, that's all I'm saying. And I, I absolutely certainly a game that. where you can't just do what you want to do and probably win. You, you probably need to be more, you know, more open type of strategy than that, which I think also speaks to how much interaction there is in the game. And right, it, there is that strategic ecosystem that I was talking about, that without that, the game fails to do what it sets out to do. And this game does not fail to do what it sets out to do, right? And I think that that also, what you're saying, is what defines as a, as a drafting game. And it is a drafting game. It's an open card-based, tree-based drafting game. And I appreciate that you invoked magic drafts because that's sort of the mindset that you have to go in with right you don't want to do it the easy way of saying this is the strategy that i'm playing you have to play these games tactically and interactive tactical games are fun yeah and i don't think this game needs this for most groups because it is like a pretty i mean it won like the expert board game or, or whatever but i feel like this is a pretty light game yeah like i think this is a very accessible game overall but if you wanted to teach it to like a brand new gamer as like a gateway game. Um, I think you could do it and you could really easily be like, you could just focus on like fire this game, you know, and that'd be like, which you could do similarly, like with magic, right? 
it it uh, affords like the option of playing a really linear strategy and also there's yeah. plenty of depth there for more experience play to get to your dad doesn't play a ton of games with you but your mom does do you think you could teach her mom living forest she's played kanagawa with you i think this would probably be a little too much for a little her, to too much honest. okay yeah i think this is right i also play a lot of for new listeners a lot of games with my mom uh, and i think that this is right on the edge i think that she would yeah it's really interesting that it kind of lives in that space where it's like just a tiny bit maybe because of the sheer number of systems just yeah, a tiny think, bit yeah. beyond Nothing's too yeah. complex. There's just a lot of pieces. You just have to like hold in your head how these four different systems work. I think, she I think would that could be tough. Be settled into playing by the third play and be a little frustrated <laughs> yeah. in the first two. Okay, maybe when I apply it to my own life, it's not exactly a gateway game. I'm going to retract that, but it, I think it is accessible for sure. It's meant to and, be. And it's accessible and there's like easy onboarding systems if you want to pursue those linear strategies, which is nice. I think that's a plus. Yeah. Where should we... Um, I want to talk to. really quickly about the clarity of the decision oh, space. So this is like when you think about clarity of the decision space is like how easy it is to zero in on the best choice on your turn. Right. So a game that has uh, very little clarity, a very fuzzy decision space, you might have five different things, but you can't really it's really difficult to pull them apart to know what you should be doing in any given moment where a clear game, uh, you have a lot of turns where you feel like slam dunk i'm definitely going to buy this card and i'm gonna put this tree down um and i think i'll just jump in first like well let's talk i want to talk about the blackjack like how clear do you think the decisions are in the blackjack part of this game i think that they are fairly clear but not perfectly clear they Mm -hmm. start especially in the first half of the game there until your deck becomes fairly augmented i would say the decisions there are pretty linear uh, because to make the optimal decisions with the base deck that everyone starts with, the way that you play the game is you draw cards until you have two solitary icons and then you stop. Because the penalty of busting in this game, of revealing three solitary tokens without stopping, is so s- severe. Losing an action uh, when you only have two actions on your turn and it's a 12 or 13, maybe 14 or 15 turn game is a lot. That's a huge cost. So you really, outside of towards the end of the game when you really only need to do one thing to push over the finish line, it's rare that you're going to put yourself in the position to bust. So I think early on, they're pretty linear. Later on, when your deck is larger, maybe you've added more cards with gregarious tokens. Maybe you've added more fire cards. Maybe you have some cards, you've added some cards that have negative values on them. Then your decisions start to get more interesting because you start asking the question, is this enough more often? And I think that the the blackjack style decisions are the most interesting when as the player you're sitting there saying you're looking at your tableau so far and you you think to yourself is this enough um that's a hard question to answer and that's where that system is interesting and i love it and i want to grapple with it more but i think it only happens turn six or so roughly usually onwards and then uh, some paths it stops because I have so many gregarious tokens, the white ones that cancel out the solitary, that I just know that if I hit two of them at the beginning, I'm going to flip my whole deck over. But I still have Mm -hmm. to do it. What do you think? Yeah, I'm like a very conservative-minded gamer in general. So for me, I'm generally like the... I think the heuristic of just flip cards until you have two solitary symbols and then stop gets you pretty far in this game. Yeah. Which, you know, and if you're just going by that, then it's like 100% clear. 
you know, and that'd be an easy and fine way to play it. I do think it, the system is a little deeper than that, of course. Yeah. Like there are times when you can say like, okay, I really need to, you know, as you play more moments will reveal themselves. You're like, well, I really need to get up to like eight tree buying power. I'm at two symbols now. I have like, this is how weighted my deck is with these symbols. Like, is it worth it for me to hit one more time? Um, and I, I do think like that is quite interesting. Um, have you ever, did it ever come up for you in a play where you think like, I have everything I want on this turn. So I'm just going to stop, stop, even though I only have one or fewer solitary symbol. Yes. Not one or fewer. Typically, no. That's what I mean. Yeah, if you have Typically, two and you no. stop, then that's not really, that's just playing it norm, straight. But if you had one and you still stop because you're like, I have everything I need, I'm going to, I don't know, like, I don't know, I don't think I ever did that. It is an option available to you. I don't know, like, why you would, right? Because you well, want to get another solitary symbol out of your deck. You might, you might want to get another solitary symbol out of your deck and you might want to leave certain cards in your deck for next round. There's great right. value in knowing what cards still remain in your deck if you know there's good cards in there that you can get for next round. I think the only time I've done that maybe is trying to set up really powerful flower turns when I'm going for a flower victory. If I draw enough to buy something that I need to stack the deck, like if I can buy two flowers and I know next turn I'm going for it, I'm going to refrain so I can add those flowers to the top of my deck and then go for my combo the next turn. But I think mm -hmm. it's really, really rare. It, I think it's rare. I think that I, I can see that there probably are correct times to do it, though that's probably very like advanced level stuff. Yeah. And I think generally, like, I really like this system because I think it's straightforward. Like, it's not too, too punishing for new players, right? Because you have that super simple heuristic um, to lean on. And, like, if you just do something really, like, dumb and get punished because you just are, like, being needlessly aggressive, that's kind of okay. Because it's not like, oh, like, I'm shocked that this happened when you're drawing with two solitary symbols already out. But I do think, like, because everything in this game is so on rails to use that term again, like the game always is going roughly this many turns. Like there is a high skill ceiling for performing the best and knowing when you should be playing the more aggressive lines, when you should be playing more conservative lines uh, with the blackjack. And I think, you know, you could really improve a lot in that area of this game. If you flip two solitary tokens, your first two flips of the game, there's little incentive not to continue down and flip a few more cards. You know there's not many solitary symbols remaining in your deck, and you know that getting off to a strong start is important. So I think that that's another example of a time where you have flipped two and you might want to continue flipping because it's important to continue, and then at some point you're going to stop. But I also think that, Jake, one thing that we have to talk about at this point is that the design of things that you can do with the resources that you're getting while flipping are designed in such a way that there are meaningful targets. There are really mm -hmm. thresholds. Like the tier one cards are about like cost between like two and five. Uh, the tier two are between five and 10 or so. And the tier three for guardian animals are between like 10 and 12. Maybe they go up to 13. I I'm not sure. So there's a little bit of overlap. Um, and then trees, you have trees that cost, uh, what is it? It's like, three to 11 linearly scaling up mm -hmm. and i think that oftentimes at the start of your turn based on your position you do have that moment 
where you say, this is what I'm trying to do this turn. Can I flip cards that get me there? And you might be at a point where you've flipped six, seven cards, two solitary tokens are out and you just are short two trees and you sort of say, I think I can hit this card and you go for it. You know? Yeah. It's rare. And, and I think the game does a good job of like making that worth it if you gamble and hit. Because yeah. like especially early in the game, the first turn, right? Buying a card that costs five or six is really gonna wow. help get your engine up and running. The same is true with trees, right? Where if you can all of a sudden in, in your first turn of the game, you're already incre- increasing your tree income by two, which I think is like a five cost tree. Like that's so good to have just like every single turn you're producing that uh, that can give you a huge advantage and a lot more flexibility over the rest of the game. So it, sure, it could definitely be worth it to, to try and strive for that, though, as you already point out, the punishment of busting early on is big, but at least you've got rid of three of those solitary cards for your deck. So like if you did really like go one, two, three bust, like your next turn is going to be huge. I think that that's a really interesting thing about this game and most of the systems that we'll we'll talk about today, Jake, is that there are really interesting decisions here, but oftentimes you're not making them. Whether it's because you're disincentivized for making them or because they don't come up as often as you sort of wish they would. Like we're making a lot of, um, we're finding a lot of cases where the blackjack mechanism is really interesting and you get to make Mm -hmm. rich, robust decisions. Most of the time when you're playing, you're playing the procedural way, right? Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. Like the heuristics carry you really far. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say that certainly the majority of your turn, the majority of my turns this game, I just go until I hit two solitary symbols. Yeah. And that's not, there's no, I'm not making a decision at all. But I don't know, like, because I, th- that is true on one hand, but I also think like when, right, when you talk about depth, right, as we talked about in our episode on depth, it's like those moments where, you break a heuristic, a really strong heuristic, are some of like the most meaningful fun and satisfying strategic decisions we get to make in board games. So, you know, I I think it's not as much a detractor for me because it's not like they never come up either. It's like maybe once or twice a game. And when you're talking about like a short game like this, I mean, 45 minutes on the table, no doubt, you know, much less online, it's kind of okay to me that we're just doing the blackjack really quick definitely and i think that playing this on the table there would be times where the towards the end of the game it's not super quick for whatever reason right someone's Mm -hmm. flipping more slowly they are carefully considering and that's okay but i think that for me i want when i break the heuristics back to your point about depth i want to feel creative and i think that sometimes you feel smart when you break the heuristics and i you could feel creative. Some of the decisions you were talking about, like I'm not going to buy these fires so my opponents get burned. There, There's a little bit of room for creative play, but the systems are rigid enough to keep the game flowing in the right direction to maintain a level of accessibility, simplicity, lightness, which I love. I love those things in games to keep those things true. Um, and one concession is that there's slightly less room for creative play. I just keep thinking about Lost Ruins of Arnak because it's so similar in that yeah. way, right? Like how creative can you be in that game? Not very creative. Not very, um, but it's still a great game. Yeah. That makes you feel smart and, and you have a good time. I, you know, everyone always thinks that, uh, I think Board Game Barrage just did an episode on Twin Games, mm-hmm. their most recent release, where they, and they talk about uh, Ruins of Arnak and Dune Imperium as being these twin games because they both have the same deck building worker placement systems in it 
But I think this is the true twin twin game of Ruins of Arnak. We need to do an episode on twin decision spaces, right? We can talk about how Azul and Castles of Burgundy have the exact same decision space and no one talks about it because that's that's why you're here, listener. You're here to hear the takes that you would never hear elsewhere. The twin games are Azul and Castles of Burgundy, this and Lost Ruins of Arnak. We're gonna Let's make a note of yeah, this. We're gonna make yeah. an episode on twin decision spaces. Take that, BGB. That's great. Thank Talk you. about social hacking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. There's so much in this game. We got to march on. And I feel like we've talked about a lot of the mechanisms already as part of the discussion space decision. But like we've talked about how purchases lead to fires. Uh, we've talked about strategy commitment. We've talked about a lot of this stuff. But where do you want to go next? I think that's fire through some of the core okay. systems and just talk about. Uh, like highlights and and things that we uh, highlights and, and other aspects. How's that? That sounds great. We've already talked about it a ton, but I do want to talk about the card purchasing one more time because there's okay. something about it that I think is brilliant. And I think that what I like most about this game is it's one of the instances where it forces you to evaluate and compare apples to oranges. Um, what I mean by this is it's the one area in the game where you're forced to make a purchasing decision where the value of certain things isn't clear. How many uh, how many tree symbols on a single card is worth one gre- gregarious symbol, Jake? Who the heck knows? I could not tell how you. How many movement spaces is worth a gre- on a single card is worth a gregarious symbol on a different card? Who the heck knows? It depends on a host of other factors. And that's why the purchase decisions are actually really interesting in this game. And the fact that you can buy multiple cards and, and combine them mathematically. It gives you good options without sort of forcing you into spiral. Oh my gosh, I could buy anything in this tableau, a million combinations. It's too much. So I think that if you're going to do a card purchase, uh, a card purchasing rows are stale. They're not stale in this game because there are so many good decisions about how it's done that I think that if games going forward that have card rows don't emulate some of the high points of this game it's a they're missing out on the potential that is there for interesting decisions i love the market in this and i you know generally i don't like random market but i think it works here for a couple reasons and one is just the dead simple reason that you have a bunch of cards Mm. available to you yeah right compared this to star realms where you just have five random cards of all different values here you have 12, four in each set, and they're divided by price to some extent. So you just have so much more options. It's very similar to Space Base in the, the way the market is set up. And I think that's just like, for me, a strict improvement over a more limited market. Um, and I think here too, you have the exact same phenomenon as we talked about with Blackjack, where you have such a strong heuristic that will take you very far of just using your money efficiently. Yeah. Right. I have eight bucks. Uh, OK, this card costs three. This card costs five. So this is the combination that allows me to like expend all my money and add two good cards to my deck as opposed to adding one card. Like that's generally always going to be the right choice, except for when it's not. Yeah. And I think with advanced play, the more you play this game, there are certainly going to be times where you say like, oh, yeah, I have eight to spend here. But really like this card that costs six is going to do more for me for whatever strategy for whatever game state is currently at play so i think i love that here too you know it's just great for beginners but it's also good for repeated play also oftentimes one criticism of these sort of card row markets is that they introduce too much randomness into a game um right where you matter where you're sitting could really impact the outcome of a game but in living forest 
there's so much randomness that it almost doesn't matter. So it, it's yeah. like there's so much else going on that we've passed the veil of card row randomness having this huge impact on the game that all of a sudden it just feels great when you're sitting in I'm the first player seat and uh, the little toucan that has a gregarious symbol uh, flips and it's your turn to buy it. It costs four suns. So I'm going to snatch it up because I'm going for flowers. So I don't care that it has negatives. Those moments are exciting. They're not exciting because of anything that I did and I don't care. I want the little gregarious toucan. I think the other reason that the randomness doesn't feel big here like it does in a lot of other deck building games is because there's like essentially not synergies at all. Yeah. Um, Right. You don't have a lot of combos. It's linear. It's kind of combo, but it's kind of just like you're just adding more values. It's really just you're building up your engine. Yeah. I think things that feel more swingy other games is like, oh, you got like this two card combo that just like ping together to do everything you would want like that doesn't really happen here. yeah there's synergies but there's not combos like a plus b is always the sum of a plus b and that's better than just having a or just having b but a plus b is not ever equal to c in this game yeah yeah so i don't know ultimately like i think it's okay because of how much else is going on and for the weight they're going for but like i'll just say like one downside to me small small nitpick is like the cards aren't that interesting Mm. You know, I generally like I look at the symbols, you know, and I feel like, OK, make that like heuristic uh, value efficiency choice. And I buy these like, you know, I buy the butterfly and I buy the sloth, like whatever. But there's nothing like thematically obvious. I, I guess we could just say now, like thematically, yeah. like whatever <laughs> this game's theme is like could not be more pasted on. Apparently at one point I heard this on Two Wood for a Wheat. Awesome episode on Living Force. If you want more Living Force content, you should check out Two Wood for a Wheat their podcast their episode on living force they said that this game was originally a city building game uh theme i buy it like trees being buildings cards being people uh it makes sense to me the theme doesn't matter so at least there's cool animal art to look at but like jake said all the cards were designed in a spreadsheet almost certainly and that's okay you just look yeah. at the symbols it looks good yeah. yeah so i mean i'm not saying it doesn't look good but anyway all right okay let's continue on okay fires now you go first <laughs> okay I, I mean so i don't know we already talked about fires a lot or oh, oh, we're talking about the the fire cards that add to your deck yeah either either part of the system yeah okay so i mean yeah fire is one of the four core systems i do think it's the easiest way to win i feel like probably the majority of games do win by fire brendan we've been playing this a lot i've been playing this with you and Cerule a lot and i've been winning a lot of games and i feel like it's because like i'm building up my water and not buying fires and you guys are just getting six of these like negative fire cards into your deck yeah i think that that's probably true i i feel like putting out fires and preventing fire cards from coming to my deck is like doing my homework um i would rather be doing other things in the system so i know i should be doing it i should be doing my homework but I don't want to. So I see how far I can push it and still have a chance of winning a different way. When I know it's that like I... the only thing in the game that doesn't increase your engine. Yeah. Yeah. So why would you want to do that? Right. You get, you're just like playing your defense. vegetables. Exactly. But it's good. You should eat your, eat your vegetables. And I love eating my vegetables in real life. But when I'm playing games, it's a tougher sell. So yes, you're totally right, Jake. Many times that I've been playing this game, I've my play loop is I think I could win with flowers this time. That would be really fun. I want to do that. Oh, f i have six fire cards in my deck i i basically lost this game because i didn't eat my vegetables and i made those decisions right i did that um and i deserve to lose them but i don't i I, it's not interesting and then once you once you don't do your homework oh now you really have to do your homework you got to go collect these shatter symbols that let you discard fire cards permanently from your deck because they're the only way to get them out of there 
unless you clean up your deck, you're really going to have a bad time. So once I didn't do my homework, now I have to do extra credit to get caught up, move on the rondelle or build my trees to get the double spot. Please, hopefully I'm by one of those because you can, you can eliminate yourself from this game long before the game is lost, long before the game is won by someone else by letting those fires accumulate. Yeah, I was just looking through the stats on Board Game Arena and I can't find any clear stat that like yeah. the stat I want to know is like what victory condition wins what percentage of the time. I'm so frustrated that it's omitted. I looked for that while writing the notes and it's not there. There's a lot of unhelpful things that are present and right. it would be great to have that. Like maximum number of water droplets present or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like what? the, who, yeah. Cares? who cares? <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah. Okay. I think we said enough about fire. Let's talk about trees. So trees are the tableau building element, right? Like, yes, when you're flipping cards through this blackjack style system, you are building your temporary tableau, but trees are what are giving you that sense of growth, (laughs) pun on trees, uh, throughout the game. And I find that the tree building on this little grid, it's a very small five by three grid. When you finish certain rows or columns, you get potential bonuses. And if you build in the corners, you also get potential bonuses or double actions. Uh, I think it's really fun. I like this core puzzle. I like interacting with the system. And I think it's interesting that there's incentives for getting duplicate copies of one tree because some of the getting two of the tree that gives you two suns early on, which let you buy more cards, can be really powerful. But it hurts your ability to make progress towards the tree win condition where you need 12 different trees. And I think that those decisions are really interesting, even if they maybe push it towards the what I said earlier of it being tough to switch sometimes. So mm-hmm. I like trees. I think trees are really fun. Uh, and the tree design is also really clever. I think everything's costed really well, the way that it linearly amps up. And some of the later on trees where you're getting four suns or the two movement trees, if you can stack those and just run around the spirit circle, the rondelle, um, that, that it can be very powerful as you slow everyone else towards their victory condition. And maybe you're taking double actions where you're building two trees a turn by landing on the tree build spot. Those are the closest that you get to these sort of wombo turns. I think the trees like do a good job of like they're the baseline strategy. Like trees are inevitability in this game. Yes. Eventually somebody's going to win with trees. Yeah. Barring another faster victory condition taking place. But I, I would imagine trees are like the least common victory condition, but who knows? Why do you think that is? I just think they're kind of slow. I think because they get expensive. Yeah, you have to build up your buying power. You have to build up your buying power a lot to get up to the top end. And then you kind of need to get the top end one that gives allows you to do the same thing twice. That really would be something that really accelerates the strategy. Also, you, the fact that you can't just buy the like if you have one off turn right you need then it's likely you know because with the tree strategy you're buying at least one tree every single turn over the course of the game ideally uh, and in the early part of the game you're only going to be able to afford the ones that cost three or maybe four and if like you have that one off turn late in the game which can happen uh chances are you've already bought yeah. all the available ones so i think i found like when i go for it like oh no like now i'm pivoting because this has happened i think oftentimes too jake it, really quickly the suns because they're the currency for buying animals which in interacts with every single system in the game i found that sun money i, I don't know this for sure but it feels like it's a little bit easier to get more suns than it is to get more trees there's the back card in tier one that gives you 
three tree buying power, but it gives you negative one sun. I think that yeah. some of the design decisions sort of, if you want to go all in on trees, there's a few tools that will let you commit, but they hurt you in other ways that pursuing some of the other strategies don't force you to do as heavily. Yeah, I think that the there is like a tier in the different resources in the game with money being the easiest thing to get, then trees, then wind, or then trees and water may be close. Then I think wind seems to be slightly wind being more the difficult to one, get. Right? Yeah, and then flowers being the most difficult thing to get. Sure. I, I think that w- the movement might be the hardest to get, but the flowers you don't care about wanting unless you care about wanting them. And yeah. besides that, I agree with everything you're saying. One last question about trees. Like when you're doing that, I don't think there's like very much to the puzzle. Yeah. Maybe that's like another nitpick with the game. I think like that is where I see your criticism of like deciding your pass early and then sticking to it like comes up too much. Yeah. You know, because like, if you start going for like income stuff by filling up the middle columns, you know, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to get to the flowers by filling up the whole central row. Um, plus, you really want to get to the corners, which I think just sort of like pushes back against the flowers in like a really strong way. Mm, yeah. um, but do you find like I find myself starting every single game basically the same way of just filling up that central column. Mm. You already have one tree in there. You get an extra income that's going to help literally any strategy do you do the same thing or have you explored other things yeah i think that that's the best way to open for sure uh because of already having that one tree down i do do that in many many games um sometimes when i'm feeling spicy and want to go for a flowers victory i'll just try to i'll i'll focus first on completing flowers but i I, it's i don't think it's the winning strategy it's a fun strategy all right let's talk about flowers okay I don't know there's that much to talk about, but I feel like flowers is like definitely the most satisfying way to win by far. Um, it's performative. It, it, yeah, it's it feels good to win that way, but it's I it just seems so hard. I think, yeah, I think a lot of the game systems are like pushing against it, right? Like you want to build up your engine. So anytime you're taking flowers early on, you're doing it at the expense of engine otherwise, right? If you're taking a card with flower on it, probably there's an equivalent card that's going to give you more resources that doesn't have the flower. Or if you're like putting the flower tree out, like really you only want to do that like late in the game and then kind of ramp up at the last second. And I just think that's such a tricky and hard thing to pull off though. I do think it's definitely viable. Yeah. Especially in games where uh, everyone is experienced, everyone's keeping fires uh, under control and trees become the sort of dominant path that people are competing for flowers are more difficult all of a sudden a flower victory can become viable i think that the you've sort of skirted around this core idea jake that's really important uh important point to make that we've talked about in our discussion of um engine building games in general on the show in the past which is that trees and fire to some extent um, and certainly suns have this positive agency loop the more you get of them the more you can get of them flowers are not that at all they provide no real benefit outside of being markers that if you get 12 or 12 of them you win the game so there they have this one cost is that you have to pursue them actively you have to change the way that you build your trees or you have to buy specific cards to get access to these flowers and a so that's a huge cost because you're changing your whole strategy to do that. And then the second cost is that you don't get anything in return except the potential to maybe win via flowers if other players are playing in a specific way and you get lucky uh, with how your cards flip or if you get enough gregarious symbols that you can play down all your stuff. Um, I think that 
for me, the flowers embody this sort of idea of living force, which is my chief criticism that there's so many ideas that none of the ideas besides the blackjack mechanism maybe get explored enough, right? The, the tree system is almost an interesting puzzle. It's cool. It works. It's functional. It's interacting with other things, but it's not fully developed. The flowers, they're really cool. It feels amazing when you win. The idea itself doesn't feel as developed as some of the other ideas. The spirit circle, which we should pivot to talking about, yeah. is an interesting idea. It's um, it's providing interaction. You could take tokens from other players. You can block certain spaces. There's cool stuff going on here, but it's not a fully developed idea. Once you've taken everyone else's tokens, there's no real reason to continue doing it. Um, that keeps things under control, but it means it's less exciting. I, I like this idea. It's cool, but it's sort of it's an idea that's 70% developed because, oh, that's good enough. There's so much going on in this game anyway, which is true. I Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'll push back a little bit because I don't know like what being fully developed means for this game i think that they did just win like the biggest I, award yes, in no i gaming. agree i agree i agree and i'm giving my taste my how right, i yeah, right yeah because i don't know like what would a more developed win track look like i mean i don't know these feel like fully developed ideas to me when i play them though they're just like on the lighter end of the board gaming hobby like i don't want more mechanisms like more different spots on the tree board necessarily and like also like with the wind rondelle right you're moving around it there are a million reasons why you would keep doing it even if you've like somehow taken all of everyone's icons which is impossible like that would never happen and i don't mean to be as harsh as i'm being because there's a lot of things i really love about living force and obviously it's an incredibly designed game but i do think that i think what i'm saying is is that i want their there's so much potential in some of these systems that for interesting decisions that maybe aren't fully happening because of little factors in them. I wish I could yeah. s- could say more eloquently from a decision perspective why I feel that way. And yeah. obviously, I think Living Force is an incredible game. Yeah, I, I think it's totally fair. And it's not really at all fair of me to say, oh, this game won an award. So it's like above criticism. Like if that, that's not true either. It sounds like we were saying like you wish these particular systems with the rondelle and the trees had more decision space intrigue in them and i do feel like the rondelle in particular like there's not like it's typically pretty obvious like what space you should stop on there like once again you have a system that has a super strong heuristic of advancing as far as you possibly can because you want to pass people and take their tokens and not let them pass you back to take your token and then also you want to take the actions that advance your strategy slash like whatever you have available to you. So like generally I'll move as far as I can to the action that I need to take. I think what I'm also saying is I I want to be able to do cool and creative things. And outside of drawing my whole deck, I don't feel like I'm often doing that. Like when I'm interacting with the spirit circle, I don't feel like I'm ever off, no matter how much effort I put, how much time I invest into learning the game and the heuristics and the depth, I don't feel like I'll ever get to make a cool or creative decision with the rondelle. And I don't feel like I'll really get to make a, cool or creative decision really with the trees i don't mm-hmm. know not to no, say, it's interesting yeah this game leans into more of like the strategy side of decision making yeah right? absolutely like the cool part like i think the game and whether you agree and believe this is true or not is totally up to individual personal preference but i think the game is telling you like not like i'm gonna make a smart tactical decision with the rondelle it's saying like you get to move five spaces because of like these other decisions you made previously, like how cool is that? Sure. And it does feel cool. Cause like, oh, I passed two people and I got to take like a double tree action. You know, that's how like that 
feels good. It feels like a big impactful move, even if like once you finally do get to that turn that your engine has led you to, it's very obvious what decision to make. I do think that there's moments with that decision with the spirit circle and the interaction that happens there that some people might criticize. And I don't have this criticism that is that it introduces a level of politics into a strategy game that feel a little bit off because of the turn order. So if Jake, you're going first and you can move five and I'm going second and I'm going to win unless you take one of my victory tokens away, other people at the table might then tell you, you have to do that. Otherwise, I'm going to win. And it creates this weird dynamic where maybe you don't want to do that, really. But you realize, oh, maybe I should do that. And there can be some sort of forced turns because of your ability to take victory tokens away, where it's sort of like, oh, I found myself in the position where I do have to do this. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that seems like something that's like very par for the course with sure. like any game that yeah. has interaction at all. Sure. So I don't I don't really think for me that holds much weight, but I, it's something to be aware of that that could potentially happen late in the, like on the, like the last turn of the game. But I also think that has to do more with like magic circle, right? Like what what's your group's take on king making versus like valuing coming into second place, you know, and that's calling a, out plays. And that's yeah. like a debate that goes like well beyond the scope of like this particular game. And I don't think it's like any worse here than in basically any interactive Euro game. Well, let's put those worms back in the can. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you tell us in the <laughs> Discord what you think about that. I guess kind of last game mechanism thing, just since you talked about turn order. I think it's a, a that's a strength of the game for me. Like a lot of games. So I've played this game live on Board Game Arena. I've played this game in person on the table and I've played most of my games asynchronously on Board Game Arena. And I think in a lot of async games that I play, you don't really care that much about turn order like uh you know if this gets into like my processor playing games that like when i'm like go on to board game arena to take a bunch of turns in game i have like six active tables i'll like click on it and i'm not necessarily like giving every game like full concerted effort and thought like you know sometimes like okay yeah like this seems pretty obvious i'm choosing what to care about and in living forest turn order all that long-winded is to say like turn order really matters in living forest like you really have to take a second realize like what's happening before you what's happening after you and like when you get to go next maybe i'm going for fire and i'm going next so i'm gonna instead of taking the few fire that's available now i'll just buy up a bunch of cards to create like a massive pot of fire for me to scoop up on my next turn uh stuff like that yeah totally i now I feel I'm frustrated because I, I this is a game Jake that before we reviewed, I think when it first when I first saw it and then again when it first came to Board Game Arena, I was really really excited because I think this is a game that on its face value seems like a game that I should love and you should feel kind of like this is good but I don't love it just based on where we're both at and you like it significantly more than me. I want it to be a game that I like more than Kanagawa. Like I feel like it could have been the Kanagawa killer for me and it's not. Um, I'd much rather play Kanagawa uh, from Bruno Cathala and Charles Chevalier than I would Living Forest. And I wish I, I, I wish that wasn't the case. And I wish I better understood what about its systems made me feel that way outside of a lot of the things that I've already sort of brought to the fore. Um, and there's mm-hmm. so much about Living Forest that I, I think is brilliant and awesome and really, really good design. And I am really glad that it's getting the attention that I think it, it does deserve, even if it's decision space doesn't quite hold up to what I wish it did. 
Yeah, that was very, very tortured. <laughs> Everything you just said, it's like, you're like, I could just see you fighting with yourself so much. You're like, you're like, this is a great game that deserves praise that I wish I liked more, but I don't. It's hard. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I have to be honest. It's right? fine. Like, you don't have to like every game. But I want to like this game. That's what's so okay. hard about it. I know I don't have to like every game, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. And we've we've covered we've covered games we don't like on the show before, but this is one I want to like more than I do. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the great thing about this being on Board Game Arena is it just makes it incredibly accessible. Um, so I think we've probably given people a lot to think about about hopefully what we try to do on the show is characterize the decision space in a way that you might get some sense of what it feels like to play this game. Um, so at the end of the day, that is what we're trying to accomplish. Much less important is whether we personally yep. found this game uh, great or not. Uh, you know, such a sub- subjective thing. So hopefully this gives you a good idea. I think we'll probably wrap up our conversation there. Brendan, do you have any final words, final plugs, uh, anything else to touch on before we sign off for today? I think just the biggest thing is that we're going to be, for our pre-planners, reminder about Isle of Cats coming up. Uh, and just say that was a really succinct summary, Jake, of our show and what we're here to do. And if you like what we're doing, I hope you'll, uh, now I'm talking to the listener, not to Jake. I know Jake likes what we're doing. Uh, you'll continue to engage with the show in other places, whether it's decisionspacepodcast.com, like I mentioned, checking out uh, our Discord link in the show notes. Again, Discord is just like a chat browser, a, a chat room that you can join from an uh, internet browser. There's lots of people who are active there that have this awesome little community of people who like to talk about games uh, and are fairly friendly and also play games sometime on Board Game Arena. You can also find Very us- friendly. <laughs> you can also find us on uh, Board Game Geek, our blog there under Decision Space. Jake is so frustrated that I just said mostly friendly. Uh, and so just search there or you can find us on Twitter at Decision Spa. Jake, what are your closing thoughts? Besides yeah, shaking think, your head in shame that I... Yeah, SMH. No, I think it was, <laughs> that was that was great. Looking forward next week to Isle of Cats. We can move from a game that you can't beat me at to a game that I can't beat you at. So we'll oh see. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, we'll, see, we'll see how that bears out. And maybe it turns out our ratings are just totally predicated on how much we beat each other at it alone (laughs) wouldn't that be a shame but i really liked castles of burgundy it'll never beat you at that game so it's my null hypothesis uh coming through yeah yeah. okay with that it's been an awesome episode of decision space we want to thank you all for listening and uh until next time play some game bye y'all Dang it, my dog is barking. I'll give him a second. Fred! Fred! Fred. (laughs) Come back. Come over here. Uh, Okay.